The sermon title is The Law and the Promise. Let's just read verses 20 through 29 together. Starting in verse 20. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Thank you, God, so much for this morning. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart now, our spiritual eyes to discern your truth and to receive from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said last week, this verse connects with the previous one. Um, Paul was answering the question, um, why have the law? If, If righteousness is by faith, then why do we even have the law? And Paul said last, last time in verse 19, well, it was because of transgressions to keep us until a promise came, until Christ came, so we'd know and recognize our sin, and so we'd have that sense of our need for a Savior. Now, Giacomo asked a good question last week. I kept saying the word covenant over and over again, and afterwards he goes, what is a covenant? So a covenant is a contract or an agreement or a pact. And that's one of the questions in your notes um, it's an agreement or a pact it's between two people. It's a covenant, a contract. And a mediator is someone between both sides. All right, so when you have a contract, you have someone in between that's sort of like, okay, you're promising that, you're promising that, I'm a witness to this thing. Like when God gave the law in Israel, right, to Moses, God gave it to Moses, and then Moses gave it to the people and said, this is the will of God that you do these things. And then they said, okay, we're going to do those things. And so Moses was the mediator between God and man of that covenant. But you might notice something as well as we've gone through Galatians 3, and also if you've read the Old Testament, you might have noticed something. When we first meet Abraham, we don't know much about him at all. God first speaks to Abraham, and we don't have any impression that Abraham was a man who was fasting and praying for days to hear God's still, small voice. He wasn't trying and hard for years to learn how to hear God's voice. It just says, God told Abraham, go to this land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless everyone through you. It was just a straight promise. He didn't require anything in return. From Abraham, he didn't say, you have to do these things or else I'm not going to give you this. Like with, with Moses, he said, if you obey me, I will bless you, right? If you obey these commandments, then I will do this for you. With Abraham, he says, I'm going to do this for you. It was a promise. And that's why Paul calls it a promise here, not a covenant. 
It wasn't a covenant in the sense of God saying to Abraham, if you do this, then I'll do that. And if I do this, then you'll do that. And there was no mediator. It was just a promise. And so that's why Paul says here, now a mediator in verse 20 is not for one party only, meaning when you've got a contract, you've got a mediator for two people. But God is one. And he's still contrasting the covenant with the promise. And by saying here God is one, I think what Paul is saying here is when God makes a promise, he's swearing by himself. There's no need for a mediator. There's no agreement between two people. It's a promise. And when he says God is one, that refers to um, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is called the Shema, if you're into Jewish things. Um, The Shema might be the most important prayer that Jews pray. They have prayers they recite every day in the morning and at night, and it always begins with this one. Very important to the Jews. And if you think about what it meant to be a Jew for centuries, living surrounded by um, pagan cultures that believed in multiple gods, this was sort of like a battle cry to say, our Lord is one, not many, but one. And so God uses that, Paul uses that here. But I think what he means by that is simply to say that he's swearing by himself when he promises our God is one. He needs no other mediator. And um, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Um, In Hebrews 6, verse 13, the writer says, When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Right? Like kids, when you promise something, have you ever heard like, I swear by this, or I swear, I swear to God, or I swear by my mother's grave, or that sort of thing. You know, like you swear by that, or you swear by whatever. This idea that when you make a promise, you're going to promise by someone greater than yourself. But God says, there's no one greater than me. So when I make a promise, it's by myself. And, and he cannot lie. So I think that's what Paul is saying here. God is one. And then in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. So, so now Paul expects the next question to be, does that mean like the law and the promise are kind of like working against each other because the law is like under Moses and it's like if I do this and I get that, but with Abraham it was a promise. or so these like contradictory ideas? And Paul says, no, not really. If the law could have given you life, then you could have gotten righteousness from it. But the point is, we just couldn't follow the law completely. So like what Barnes says in his commentary on this, the law of Moses is as good as a law can be. It is pure and true and good. It is not the design to insinuate anything against the law in what Paul is saying here, or to say the law is defective in some way, but it couldn't give life. It's not in its nature, and man couldn't be justified by obedience to it because none of us have ever been perfectly obedient to it, so it couldn't give us life. And so the law wasn't faulty for that reason. We just couldn't. It wasn't, it wasn't there to give us life. It was there to show us that we couldn't. It was there to show us our desperate need for a Savior. So then verses 22 through 24, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Now that word doesn't mean like shut up, be quiet, right? It means 
um, concluded or regarded or determined. Basically, the scripture has passed judgment on us. By giving us the law, the scripture has passed judgment to say we're all under sin because we can all find a place in scripture that we haven't been completely obedient. And this was on purpose, it says, so that the promise by faith might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, later revealed. Therefore, the law became our tutor. This word tutor, um, the ESV and many others translate this word guardian, which I think is probably a bit better than tutor. So this is pretty cool. In the, in the, uh, the Greeks and Roman culture, the tutor or the, the, the guardian was a trustworthy slave. Their job was to supervise the children or the boys belonging to whatever people they were a slave to. The boys couldn't even leave home without them. So these slaves were trustworthy and they were entrusted with these children to raise them and teach them right from wrong and morals until they were adults. So if you think about slave culture, the slave is not equal with the master, right? So in this culture, the slave was not equal with the children and the master, but they were entrusted with them until they became adults. And what Paul's saying here is, in the same way the law was a servant to the promise. So that when the promise comes, there's no longer a need for the tutor anymore, the, the, the guardian anymore, because the promise has come, they're now adults. And so he is, in a sense, saying the law is lesser than the promise. They're not exactly contrary, but the law serves the promise until the promise comes. And so verse 25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under, under a tutor. So, important question. Does this mean we can go on and just sin like we want because we're no longer under the law, so it doesn't matter? Paul's saying here, we're no longer under the law. So can we just go on and just sin? Yes. But why if we're not under the law anymore? But I, I know, but I'm asking you why based on this. If Paul says, you're no longer under the law. Yes, just wait. How about this? That's a good answer. Do you think it still makes God sad when we sin, even if we're not required to not sin in order to be saved? Does it still make God sad? Good. Right. So I want to make an important clarification here, what Paul is saying, because there are different kinds of law in the Old Testament, and Eric mentioned this as well. There are moral laws. There are civil laws. There are ceremonial laws, and there are even dietary laws. And some people include dietary inside ceremonial law. But let's give you some examples of this. The ceremonial laws in the Old Testament included things like animal sacrifices, all the various feasts that the Jews had all year long, all the temple traditions, what kind of robes to wear and how to walk through a temple and what kind of things to do including circumcision 
including the Sabbath, including the tithe, were all things that most would say were um, ceremonial laws. They were all a shadow of Christ. They were fulfilled by Him. Now, the civil laws were... um, they were legal laws given for the governing of the nation of Israel. Laws, for example, like how to punish certain crimes and how to govern were civil laws. Now, are we sinning today if we don't sacrifice a calf on a certain day? Are we sinning today if we don't hold a certain feast that the Old Testament commanded us to? Are we sinning today if we don't govern exactly like Israel governed in the Old Testament? Right. But... Are we sinning if we lie or cheat or steal or kill? Those are moral laws. The moral laws of the Ten Commandments are different than the rest of the laws because those actually represent God's nature. And so if we lie, steal, cheat, or murder, we're still sinning because the moral law doesn't expire. And so even though Paul says we're not under the law, he's not saying we don't have to obey any of the law. What he's saying is we're not going to earn our righteousness by it. And that law showed us we were sinners because all of us have probably stolen something in our life. We've probably cheated somewhere. We've probably lied. We've probably lusted. We've probably done these things. And the law shows us our need for a Savior. So we're not under it, meaning we're not bound to follow it in order to earn our salvation. The promise has come. Christ has come. Faith in him is what saves us. But the moral law hasn't expired. Whereas the other laws were fulfilled by Christ. Well, all of it was fulfilled by Christ. Even So he fulfilled all righteousness for us, including the moral law. But we're no longer bound in the New Testament to follow the civil laws in the Old Testament the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws. Now, if we sin today, how do we get forgiveness? By slaughtering an animal? Right. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. We confess it and we repent. All right. So verses 26 through 29 You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. All of you were baptized in Christ Jesus, and you've clothed yourself with Christ. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, you're all one in Christ. You all belong to Christ. You're all descendants of Abraham. You're heirs according to the promise. I want to mention on verse 28 that some people take this verse out of context, especially in terms of the male and female roles in marriage and in church. Um, elsewhere in the Bible, for example, Paul talks very specifically about male and female roles in marriage in Ephesians 5. We'll get there pretty soon, hopefully. We're almost there. He also talks about male and female roles in the church. We see a little bit of that in 1 Corinthians 11. We see more of that in 1 and 2 Timothy. So the Bible, the Bible expresses what I would call a complementarian view of the male and female roles where it says men and women are different. They've got different roles in marriage and in church, but they're equal. They're both necessary. They need one another. There's just different roles, different distinctions, but they're equal. Different but equal. Um, But some people don't like that in marriage or in the church. And so they'll quote this verse and say, well, the Bible says in Christ there's neither male nor female. So we're all the same. Well, that's an incorrect understanding of this verse for a couple of reasons that I hope I can make 
clear pretty quickly. First, just logically, Paul also wrote Ephesians 5 and First and Second Timothy and First Corinthians, and he is the one in those places that explains that distinction. So if he meant here that there is no distinction, we've got a big problem because now Paul is contradicting himself, and if we believe the Bible is inspired by God, then the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write was contradicting himself, and now God is a liar, and that doesn't make any sense. I know it's confusing. I knew it would be, but some of you followed along. The main point being, Paul wrote all these things, and so you can't pretend like some of those things are no longer valid because Paul wrote this over here. They have to both be true. And so what Paul's saying here has to mean something different than saying there's literally no male or female at all in Christ. Second point, if Paul actually meant there were no longer any differences at all between men and women, the same would be said for Jews and Gentiles. Because he says that here, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek. And yet, all over the New Testament, Paul talks a lot about the Jews and the Gentiles and how, yes, they are one in Christ, but there are still differences. And Paul says in Romans, there's still a benefit to being a Jew. And for example, in Romans 11.3, he says, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. And so, if there were no more Gentiles or Jews, again, we've got a contradiction. So, what we actually have here is Paul saying, in a certain sense, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. And in a certain sense, there's no longer slave or free man or male or female or child or adult. In a certain sense. And what is that sense? We've got to pull back for a second and ask the question, what is, what is the context here? And the context has been in Galatians that false teachers came into the church teaching that you can no longer be righteous just by your faith. You've got to be a male if you're, you've got to be circumcised if you're a male, and you've got to begin to follow the law like a Jew would. And Paul's combating that idea by saying, you don't need to be a Jew to be righteous. You don't need to follow the Old Testament Jewish law, like the ceremonial law and the civil and all that. You don't need to be circumcised to be righteous. So Paul's saying, in this way, there's no longer any difference. Meaning, righteousness is received the same way for everyone. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, or a boy or a girl, or a slave, or a free man, or a child, or an adult. There's only one way to be righteous, and that's by faith. Paul says the same thing in uh, Romans 10, verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him, for whoever call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So again, in this sense, there's no longer a difference. Because whoever calls on me, whether male or female or Jew or Greek, they're all going to get saved. So that's what he's saying here. But again, like back to uh, the, the main point of this section, you're all sons of God, meaning, and brothers and, and daughters. And so, you know, in the, in the Bible, they often use the masculine term to, for like plural in the same way old English used to. You know, like now we'll say like, if a man or woman wants to get a job, he or she must go to college to get he, his, or her. We do that now, whereas in older times it was just he, to be more general. Um, the New Testament does that too, and so often you'll see like, you're all sons of God, but he's talking to everyone, meaning sons and daughters. Or when they say brothers, they often mean brothers and sisters. So here he's saying, you're all sons of God, or sons and daughters of God, through faith in Christ. Um, meaning again, this is all for everybody through faith. 
You were all baptized into Christ. You've all been clothed with Christ, which is a great picture. Um, also in uh, Ephesians, we'll get to where he mentions putting off the old man and putting on the new man, which is Christ. And there's this picture of like, we're, we're letting go of our old life and we're putting on an entire new life in Christ. We're clothing ourselves with Christ. So in that sense, <clears throat> there's neither Jew or, G- or Greek or slave or free or male or female. You're all one. And then check this out, verse 29 you belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendant. So whether or not you're actually of Jewish or Hebrew descent, when you have faith in the Messiah, you become part of the descendants that God promised Abraham, which means you're part of the inheritance that was promised to Abraham, which was what? That all of the world will be blessed through Christ. So we're part of that blessing. We're blessed in Christ we're saved by Christ. We're part of that whole promise by faith. Whether or not, you know, like Lindsay has some, some Hebrew blood in her, so I always joke that I just married her to get grafted into to the, the Jewish culture and, and all that. Um, but if you're like me and you're a complete Gentile, the blessing is that now, through faith, I'm part of that promise too. So this is the point that we've been getting to so far in Galatians. And just to kind of like summarize this gospel, he's just basically saying, and what a blessing it is, this is like the only religion that teaches this. You can't earn what God wants to give you. God has all this stuff to give you, and you can't do anything to earn it. All you can do is receive it. It's like if I want to give you a, like your favorite imaginable toy or like a new house or whatever you can desire, and I'm like, here you go, and all you got to do is just like receive it in your hand. That's the essence of the gospel. We can't save ourselves. We can't do it on our own. But God's like, here you go. Here is everything you'll ever need for life and happiness. Right here, here you go, and we can just receive it. And the Galatians were trying to shift away from that as if we could earn it in some way. And that's such a false gospel that we still see today. Even so-called Christians today often fall into the trap of thinking that they have to convince God to give them these blessings or earn it in some way, or they have to like really, really make sure they felt really bad or else God hasn't forgiven them. So they've got to like do these things to earn their sense of like belonging to God when God says it's free. It's here for you. All they got to do is receive it. And if you believe... You're, you're set. You're saved. You get to know God now. And that's the entire point of this is let's not follow any kind of false doctrine that causes us to think that we can earn this in some way. So what happens to our faith when we stop thinking about it in terms of earning our salvation? Does that mean we stop doing good works? Do we just stay home and, hey, God saved me, so I'm done now? What, Aiden? Right, right. So let's say Lindsay says to me today, Eli, I love you unconditionally. You're so tall. You're so strong. Can I just not give her flowers on Valentine's Day? Because, well, she already said she loved me, so, I mean, I've already got it. I'm good, right? If I'm married, do I never need to take my wife on dates? Do I never need to keep pursuing my wife? But she already loves me. I've already gotten it, right? I've already earned it. So the shift is this. It's because 
of what I have that I want to give. When you, when you recognize what God has given you and you're grateful for what God has given you, the good works you do are not to earn his favor. They're not to earn his love. It's out of appreciation and love for him. You're giving it back. Right? So my love for Lindsay and my continual pursuing after her is not because I'm trying to earn it or I'm afraid of losing it. It's because of what she's done for me. And out of gratitude, I want to show her how much she means and that's what any kind of love relationship should be like. Even if with friends, you don't want to have to feel like you're constantly earning your friendships, right? But you might want to give your friend a toy just because you're glad they're your friend. So it's no longer, in terms of salvation, our good works are no longer earning it. It's out of the abundance of just like, man, God has given me so much. I want to give back to him. And I want to share that with others. I want to serve him. I want to do, I just want to make him happy, not to earn it, but because I just love him now. I'm just so grateful for what he's done.